Hi, I'm Sharon Miller. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Jason Bradford. And you're listening to Crazy Town, where three middle-aged white guys mansplain the apocalypse. This episode was originally recorded on December 18th, 2019, before we knew much about the coronavirus outbreak. Rather than adding new material here, we decided that we'll release a full episode soon about the effects of the virus on communities, the economy, and the environment. So please stay tuned. Hey, you guys, uh, you feel like staying over for dinner tonight? We're having, we're having fish. Always. I love staying for dinner. That sounds good. Cool. Yeah. Where is where's the fish from? Do you Did, do you catch it? You get the trout right here out of Muddy Creek. No, no, no. It's uh, really special. It's uh, Chinese Scottish cod. <laughs> Wait, what? Chinese Ch- Scottish cod? Scotchod? Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's hard to really say where this fish is from because it's traveled uh, so many thousands of miles in its journey from the ocean to your plate. That sounds really. That sounds yummy. Well, let me tell you all about it. So um, the Herald, which is a newspaper heralding from Scotland, uh, was writing about this. Uh, Cod caught off Scotland is being sent on a 10,000-mile round trip to China and back again to be filleted for supermarkets, shops, and chip suppers. I love that term, chip wait, so Wait, wait, wait. Is our dinner tonight going to be chip supper as well? Maybe. I'm excited. Yeah. Wait, so, so they're saying f- cod that's caught off the coast of Scotland yeah. is then sent to China, yeah, so that the Chinese workers could fillet the fish, yeah, and then it sent back to Scotland, yes, so that people in Scotland could buy it in the grocery store yes. and eat it. Yes, this is this is causing some. Wait, uh, what's the distance from Scotland to China? Well, it's a ten thousand mile round trip. Okay, yeah, that's that, that's that's substantial. It goes through the Suez Canal. <laughs> <laughs> they must. Uh, they should just teach the fish to swim. That yes, yeah, seriously, <laughs> yeah. They, they just like dangle something in front of it. For well, the 10, reason miles. this is happening is because the it's processed by workers earning less than one pound a day before being refrozen. One and pound to of Scotland. one what? pound of cod. Uh, the, the pound <laughs> is it? They, yeah. they get none of the fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? That's right. That's a pound. So, um, yeah, it, it's 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 kind of madness. Some environmental groups are not are not happy about it, and then there's of course the local. Jobs are lost. Right. You know, so there's one guy from Friends of the Earth Scotland is like, it's a real shame to think that this food could have been eaten fresh in Scotland, but is instead shipped around the world to make a processed packaged product. And so they, they're, they're kind of harping on these other food companies like Dawn Fresh, a seed food company in Oodingston that supplies supermarkets and other large retailers. It cut 70 jobs in 2006 after deciding to ship Scottish prawns more than 5,000 miles to China to be shelled by hand. So it's not just fish. Right. And it's also not just China. Stuff goes to Thailand. Just It seems to be like cheap labor in, in, in so, Asia. So you decided you're having us over for dinner so that we could basically revel in the in the, the great culinary delight of globalized fish yes. and yeah. seafood trade. Yeah. Well, it comes back. So the prawns come back to the River Clyde in Scotland and they're breaded for sale as scampi right. in Britain. It's like a salmon journey, really, you know, returning from sea to, <laughs> right. to the place it was born. Except in this case, it's refrigerated going on big container ships through the Suez Canal. Yeah. Right. No, okay, U.S. fish, this happens to U.S. fish all the time. It gets sure. caught off of, you know, Alaska, goes to China, comes back to the U.S. So it's not just like the Scottish or some crazy folks. It's all over the world. Wherever cheap labor is, the processing, you know, that demands 
hand processing. Well, and, just- I mean, that's the, the whole notion is that wherever you can ship something, trade something, you'll do it if it's good for your, your pockets. Yeah, that's right. So it's follow the money. It, whatever makes financial sense will be done. But it's because shipping is so cheap. Well, let's let's look at this from the broad historical perspective for a second. I mean, why why did trade grow in the first place? It seems to me that it was a way for us to just improve our lot in life, right? If you could get something that you didn't have uh, and it was useful to you, then yeah, you'd well, go and, and trade. Spices. And humans have been trading for tens of thousands of years, probably. I mean, mm-hmm. even if it's at a more localized level, you know, you had tribes trading certain things with each other. And we definitely had global trade before the modern world, right? You talked about spice trade, right? There's yeah. the, the yeah. trading routes that, hey, we all played Marco Polo in the pool, right? That was right. That was mm-hmm. all about global trade. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you think about that, I mean, spice really did make your life more interesting, right? If you're eating the same gruel every day, mm-hmm. the same... Scottish Chinese cod, you know, it'd yeah. be nice to put a little <laughs> a lemon, lemon pepper on that well, or something, and there, you know? And there are also <laughs> preservatives, spices that are used for preservatives, which wasn't just about like, hey, this tastes better. It was actually about preserving food before refrigeration. Right. So there it was, was really important. Yeah. So there is like the dopamine hit, the novelty factor, but then there's some useful stuff. So right. I'm thinking like around here, there's obsidian in uh, artifacts from Native American. Yeah, this volcanic glass rock. Yeah. Right? It's like pure black yeah. glass almost. And the closest obsidian source is a few hundred miles away or something. So mm-hmm. maybe not quite that far. But anyway, they had to trade for obsidian. And that improved their ability to hunt and to, and to cut things and process. Yeah, you can make these razor sharp arrow points you can do and surgery knives. With obsidian. And, yes, yeah, they still do, right? I think they might. Yeah. So yeah, so there you know, it's fine to do this maybe to some point, but but now there's it's sort of huge, right? Like phosphorus is primarily sourced from Morocco and sent around the world as fertilizer. What's the the base product that the phosphorus is in? It's a rock, it's a high concentration of phosphorus in a rock called rock phosphate, which then gets then shipped, you know, mined and then shipped and then turned into superphosphates in fertilizer factories and then put on farmland. Okay, so I think we can all agree that there are some upsides to establishing trade, and we've got a probably a somewhat positive history with it, but things seem to have grown there's, to the extreme. Let me just say, there's also a dark history to global trade as well, yeah. right? Talk about Certainly. the trade of the enslavement people. of people, right? Right, And then you also think about, especially with uh, the new, quote-unquote, new world, bringing Mm. gold and silver and other things or back uh, to Europe. or the commodities like sugar doing these right. sugar cane plantations yeah. yeah i mean there's a dark side there's yeah. there are actually some great books on like on the history of cotton mm. for example that that really get into that but yes i mean obviously trade was established because it provided some value to the people that were initiating the trade sometimes it's a one-way value but right. sometimes it's two ways right, right? <laughs> I think it's important though to recognize that things are different now, right? And maybe it's just it's just that it's all been taken to the extreme. You yeah. know, we've always been doing global trade, but now we have a situation where you could actually justify somehow or make it work out, you know, economically to do the the batshit insane stuff that you're talking about, Jason, yeah. like with the with the cod and the prawns. And it's interesting to think about what the change is there, right? It's funny that you say batshit crazy, because that was one of the commodities, too, was batshit, right? Yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guano. Yeah. Bird and bat. So yeah. 
that's the thing is that it grew to the extreme. Why did it do that? I mean, one's just cheapness, right? Like you were talking about with people who are working at a really low wage. It's cheaper somehow to do all that shipping. Asher, I know you mentioned corporate profits as another uh, another why this got so big. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what's driving a lot of this, right? I mean, Today, Jason, yeah. you were talking about it. It's, it's, it comes down to the economics. What is the most cost-effective thing for the companies that are doing this? Right. And labor is their, their, most, their biggest cost. Yeah, in a right. country like Scotland or like the U.S., labor costs tend to be high in these sort of, quote-unquote, developed nations. Right. I think there's also technological changes that have happened, and some of those have to do with satellite tracking yeah. and computers to be able to sort of track inventories that allowed them to 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 ship a lot more things. The big one, obviously, is is the container. Yeah, right. Yep. That's the name. Yeah, I think Thomas McLean was the guy. The truck driver was kind of like, had the epiphany one day while he was waiting to waiting to get his truck unloaded. He's like. They should just take the whole back of my truck, you know? And right. Then, really? Yeah, and the idea of the shipping container. Yeah, so instead of you, you have to open up the back of the truck and take everything out by hand, right? You just, you right. have a container that, that just gets plopped down on the truck or or the, the rail it, car or whatever. It was a huge efficiency gain there. Yeah. I mean, it went from costing something like $6 a ton to load a cargo ship to costing 16 cents. Wow. That's insane. So, yeah. And they're all uniform, right? They just stick them on boats. So what we've seen because of that, of of these improvements and the drive for corporate profits, the opening up of global trade and trade yeah, agreements, agreements right. the economic policy of pursuing globalization, and you know, there's a World Trade Organization that are these, the the World Bank, these agencies that basically are are incentivizing countries to open up, right, mm-hmm. yeah. to global trade as a way of growing their economies and providing economic benefit to their people. Uh, it's basically now connected the world. And of course, a lot of that is driven by the cheap energy behind that. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's our that's our usual suspect. You yeah. can it, it, It's always <laughs> going to come back to that. We have cheap and easily available energy that can drive cargo ships, can drive trucks, can drive the planes and automobiles where all this stuff is circuiting the earth. Yeah, I mean, if they had to do it by by sales, there's a limit yeah. <laughs> to how many containers you could put on one of those boats. Yeah, yeah. or you're uh, riding your bike down the street carrying the refrigerator. To, Some people uh, do that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. You, see, you see, see that. But if you just think about it, um, there's a great stat that I saw, and I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Oh, um, I know which one you're talking about. It's uh, it's Rose George's uh, 90% of Everything. That's right, yeah. So she had this great stat that blew me away, and this is this is actually now... Five, you know, six years? No, no 2009, I think. The book 2000, came. no, 2011 is the stat. So okay. it's, it's changed. It's probably grown even since then. But one of the stats she threw out there was that U.S. ports, just U.S. ports, which are not necessarily the biggest in the world, right? Just U.S. ports in 2011 imported $1.73 trillion in goods. And just to put that in perspective, that's 80 times all U.S. trade across the board 50 years ago. Wow. And that's a number I don't understand, a trillion. What is what? What even is that? Yeah. And that's just the stuff coming into the U.S., yeah. right? Yeah. So you think about it globally, it's it's... It's well, well the, the other I remember the stat that this stat from it was in her book, but it's it's current still is ninety percent of the things you buy arrive by a container ship. Yeah, that's right from the title of her book, right? Yeah, ninety percent of everything. everything. Yeah. And so 
There's 20 million containers moving around the seas at any given time. <laughs> 20 uh, million. Yes. And there's usually about 20,000 containers on the biggest ships. And there's 51,000 ships in the maritime fleet. So there's 51,000 ships going around the world with 20 million containers on them any one time. Think about that. You said 20,000 per ship. Yeah. Like, so that. Yeah, have you ever seen one of those containers? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're they're amazing. I actually Huge. was I was one time at a meeting that was sort of talking about this stuff, looking at our use of energy. It's actually where I met Richard Heinberg for the first time. And the meeting room was at this old fort that overlooks San Francisco Bay. And at the time, Annie Leonard was, was showing this movie she had made called The Story of Stuff, mm. basically talking about how unsustainable our economy has become. And my where I was sitting, I could see the ships coming in, yeah. carrying these. I mean, they look so top heavy, like yeah. they're just gonna roll over. But the irony of her showing that film and watching these cargo ships filled yeah. with who knows what coming the real in. world personification of yeah. what she's talking. Yeah. About. And they park. They kind of go through the Golden Gate Bridge, and then they often park on the other side of the Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. and they just sort of hang out there waiting for like the port to open up space, the Port of Oakland. Yeah. It's quite a scene. And that's Un- not even the biggest one. Unbelievable. Well, it, but here's what's interesting to me is like you add up the fuel, you said fuel. So this is pretty current. 2.1 billion barrels of fuel annually are used in the shipping industry. 2.1 billion barrels, which for perspective, that's about 6% of kind of contemporary global oil production. That's a pretty high percentage for that single industry. Right, right. Although it bad pun, but it fuels so much of the rest of economic action that's going on around the world. Yes. Well, okay, so trade has gotten massively huge. I think we agree on that point. Uh, and we said there were some upsides, but there's clearly some downsides as well. And for your benefit, we've uh, we've kind of put these into some categories. And I wanted to start with one that I call insane trade. Uh, we got to pull this from our favorite economist, Herman Daly, the famous ecological economist. One of only a few economists that we actually <laughs> right, like. Right, yeah. right. It's a favorite economist is a short conversation, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's a small meeting room that we need to have. Right. So Herman Daly has this take on, on this illogical, inefficient, kind of insane trade. And he, he says that the U.S. imports Danish butter cookies. And Denmark imports U.S. butter cookies, so the cookies cross each other somewhere <laughs> over the Atlantic. If you're, if you're are they waving to each other? Right. <laughs> and you know, he says, okay, consumer theory would say you can get some gains from trading these commodities because you're expanding the range of consumer choice. Maybe for the uh, butter cookie connoisseur or something. Yeah, the Danes love our butter, and right. we apparently love theirs. Right. <laughs> But he blows up the argument there by just saying, couldn't we just trade recipes? You know, wouldn't, <laughs> right. wouldn't that be easier? <laughs> right, right. And that's the problem. You can't with like the laws. It's hard to actually... Oh, right. they're it, all like Intellectual property, property on no, butter, no, no, butter no. cookies. <laughs> the butter cookie property law. But there's also... You know, that is a cutthroat industry, yeah, by the way. I do have a butter cookie lawyer if you need one. <laughs> yeah. she, she's really good. But even this idea that we, we're better off with more choices is complete bullshit. Because... All these, these other studies have shown, oh, 
which jam should I buy? And you're staring at this like giant supermarket and right. there's like 80 varieties of jam. Your, going, your personal satisfaction is just in a, in a tailspin. Right, so you like, like, waste 15 minutes doing like this like complex calculations on sort of, you know, the optimization of your jam purchase. It's like, shit, just give me like five flavors and two brands and I'm done. Or, or one flavor in one brand you might even be done maybe right but no instead we just think oh more is always better but yeah. no it just floods your brain with this terrible like decision 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 okay well let's go to our Sorry. next category that's insane trade which herman daly has uh, laid out so nicely well i got one even worse i think well maybe not i don't know they're all bad <laughs> frivolous trade and okay. this is like the rubber duckies that fill container ships right what what crap or why are we why are we taking precious resources and turning them into like disposable plastic junk and shipping them around the yeah. world? Yeah, you remember the rubber duck tragedy of 1992 where that- uh, the container fell off and a bunch of rubber ducks and other plastic toys, like 28,000 rubber ducks went into the ocean and sailed the seas until they, until <laughs> they, they floated. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're free. Right. Yeah. Run away. Wasn't that like swim re- away? Wasn't that like the a research boom like, oh, highly visible products that landed in one spot. Yeah, now they we were follow them. They actually learned some things about ocean currents. Right. And, See know. there's that, you talk about that as a downside. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's clearly an upside to having plastic shit floating around well, in the ocean. You know, for every rubber duck, there's also a rubber dog poo out there as well being traded. Do they float as well? <laughs> Stop it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But there's definitely some things being traded well, in that either probably case, don't need to be. It, it is, it is um, a tragic loss because it needs to get to its final place, which is in the mouth of little toddlers you know, right. chewing on right. this plastic and, and swallowing all that well, stuff. And even to be serious for a moment, don't you think once the fossil fuels are gone and we've blown through that resource, somebody in the future is going to look back and go, Really? We were shipping rubber dog poo across the world? Like, that's what we used that for? Well, the good news is that rubber dog poo will still be around in, in a thousand yeah. years. <laughs> they could just go to the landfill and dig it up themselves. Right. Yeah. Still, still useful. Nostalgia. Just as useful I as I wish I lived today. in that day. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't stay serious for very long, could we? So, yeah, and here's another one. What we call the Rube Goldberg trade, right? So, you know... The Rube Goldberg machine, the very complex machines that... um, Kind of start where they stop, but had all these twists and turns along the way. So there's this podcast called Planet Money, and and a number of years ago, they actually did, I I thought, a really interesting sort of investigative piece. Uh, They decided that they were going to make a t-shirt, and they wanted to follow the process of how that t-shirt came into being, right? So they followed sort of the life cycle of of the creation of that t-shirt. And I would suggest to listeners go go google that because it's really interesting to listen to the the stories involved but if you look at the journey from the seeds to the final product i mean you've got in in their case they had cotton for the t-shirt being grown in the mississippi delta in the united states and then it gets sent to a number of different countries for different phases of kind of the manufacturing process right so it goes from the mississippi delta all the way to Indonesia, and then from Indonesia goes all the way back to Colombia, and then from <laughs> Colombia goes all the way to Bangladesh, what before going in a container all the way back to the United States, so that's, that they can go in the store and you can buy it. That's no, why the store wait. is Old Navy, 
Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. They need their own Navy. (laughs) So even if you can't travel the world, at least your shirt, the the T-shirt on your back has been everywhere. well-traveled. You know, and of course they do that because... It's efficiency and, and particularly labor efficiency, well, right? And that's a T-shirt with not much in the way of Complex. raw materials. Like, what, right. what does it take to make a, a modern car? Like, how many? Yeah. What's the Rube Goldberg oh. index oh, on that? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can take one major part in that car, and you're going to have a story like this, and then just multiply that by all the different. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, so from Rube Goldberg, let's get to uh, another kind of downside of trade, which is this problem we have where the impetus to trade leaves more and more lands around the world vulnerable. So, you know, the the folks with money are looking for more money. They're looking for opportunities. So there's an opportunity, say, to grow palm oil in Borneo, and you chop down the native forest and kill off all the biodiversity there. Maybe most tragically, orangutans are getting decimated. Um and yeah. uh, maybe we can get an orangutan trade going. I don't know, uh, but uh, but certainly the the palm oil trade is yeah. uh, is doing damage. And if if yeah. you didn't have this huge international network of trade, that wouldn't happen. It wouldn't and, make any sense. And to that do is it. a uh, that is just one tiny example. Oh, I mean, the Amazon you- rainforest right now is being decimated to expand corn and soy production. Which is basically to feed pigs and chickens in usually like China and Europe. Well, and corn and soy in the Amazon's got to require all kinds of agricultural inputs from all over the world, Yeah, right? it's, it's massive chemical use. The soils are crappy for growing anything, okay? It's just, it's just cheap land and decent weather and, a lot of, and good rainfall. But the soil is really like leached out. And so the fertilizers required are enormous. Way, way more fertilizers used to grow corn and soy there than would be like in good soils like in the Midwest of the U.S. So it's it's just because also then you've got this cheap fertilizers also made from fossil fuels right. that also can be shipped all over the world. So it's kind of it becomes a Rube Goldberg to make your make corn and oh, make your chicken. You're back to our, yeah. uh, our Rube Goldberg. And you know, it's the the reinforcing pressure is driven by both sides, the sort of supply and demand. So you talk about we talked about palm oil, right? I don't know, 10 years ago, how many products have palm oil in it? You know, certainly 15 years ago, right? Yeah. And this industry arises and, and it has a demand it's trying to stoke demand for its product being used, right? So now yeah. it's almost, it's so difficult. You were talking, Jason, about like all the jam options you have. If yeah. you're a conscientious <laughs> you know, buyer and you are aware that palm oil is so devastating, right. try going and buying cookies or whatever. Right. You know, There's so many products now that have palm oil in it because that's like... That Does is Danish a, butter cookies have palm they oil? They probably oh, do not. No. The butter is just too expensive. Those Danes, you know, oh, churning butter. That's butter-flavored palm oil? Yeah. Well, and the, the best brand of palm oil is orangutan tears, right? <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, I use that for my toothpaste. Right. Yeah, yeah and yeah, it's you can't a- overstate the impact of that. It's not just a localized impact on biodiversity. I mean, we are... It's, it's feeding so much to warming of the planet. Yeah, right. And it's, that's going to bite us all in the ass. Right. right. Well, and that's the number one problem for what's happening with the mass extinction, the biodiversity loss, is its habitat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, th- there's another downside. Um, gosh, uh, do we need more? <laughs> yeah. And that is, 
is with this hyper complex global trade system that's so focused on efficiency, right? It's driven by these financial efficiency. Yeah, financial efficiency. Yeah. Driven by these corporations looking to maximize their profits, right? And they're they're trying to figure out where labor's cheapest and maybe where they could train people to do this and that kind of task. You've have the situation where it's sort of like doesn't make sense to make this product or do this thing in this place. It makes sense to do it in this place. So we're going to do all of that in that place. And that means if there's a vulnerability in the system, it's very brittle, right? You can have one thing break in the system, you know, talk about a car and, and if the glass is all coming from one place and then there's a problem with that factory or that location, then you can't finish your car, right? Yeah. And uh, I think a really telling example of this is that when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and devastated it, There's a huge pharmaceutical industry there. I wasn't actually even that aware of this, but it's an enormous uh, part of the Puerto Rican economy. And also the pharmaceutical industry is heavily dependent on things coming out of Puerto Rico. Yeah, and it's not just the medicine. It's also the medical supplies. Like they make bags that you can put serum in or whatever. Yeah, yeah. there was a a huge issue with with those bags in, in particular. So... Hurricane Maria hit, and then all of a sudden there was a shortage of drugs for cancer and diabetes and heart disease and blood thinners, arthritis medication. I mean, it's a whole huge ripple effect, yeah, and that's yeah. just one example from one, one storm yeah. when we I specialize know, you, that You way. think this trade network is robust or something, but it's really actually easy to break it down. It's complex, but not robust, and right. it's certainly not very resilient, right? And again, because it focuses on financial efficiency right. first. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe one of the easiest things to pick at with trade is the pollution that comes directly from it, but also derives from it. I mean, one of those is, you know, everybody's, I think, becoming more and more aware of the uh, plastic in the oceans. I mean, I see commercials for it. You hear little, uh, see little ads here and there, and and it's news stories about this child in third grade figured out how to get plastic out of the ocean. But it's it's a huge problem of plastic pollution. I just got to stop you right there. I, I'm worried that our our advertiser from last season, the Plastic <laughs> Wrapping Alliance, is going to be a little upset about us talking in these terms. And, yeah, they might be, but they're they're okay. They're doing quite well. Oh, if you remember, their whole their whole deal is cut out just the middleman. Well, they're yeah, they're using the us as their greenwashing strategy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably not going to listen. Okay. Yeah. Keep keep going. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So, well, ocean plastic that's a that's an issue. Uh, invasive species. Global mm-hmm. trade is a uh, the culprit there, really, for that problem, which is probably number two behind habitat loss for the biodiversity problems we're facing. Um, but then you can also look at greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, container ships are actually really efficient, at least on a how much greenhouse gas emission they're they're putting out per say ton or pound of of good shipped. It's a lot. Lot, I hate to say this, greener than uh, than trucking or or train or airplane, but still, if you were to take shipping and add up its greenhouse gas emissions and compare that to what nations are emitting, it would it would be in sixth place. Wow! So you know, it would be like the sixth worst polluter among all the nations of of the world. So it's it's not like that's inconsequential, right? And the ships also use, uh, I don't know what this stuff is, but it's called bunker fuel. Apparently, it's quite dirty, has a very high sulfur content. So you get direct air quality issues, especially in the port cities where these mm-hmm. things yeah. 
pull up and park. And, you know, something that I find really nefarious about this whole thing is, you know, the U.S., both uh, recent presidents, Obama and, well, Trump doesn't care, but touting our CO2 emissions going down. Yeah. And a lot of that is because we basically globalized. Right. We you offshored know, the... We've offshored the manufacturing of, of the products that we purchase, right? right? So it's not on our books, even yeah. though it's our products. Well, like right? if you look at like U.S. emissions directly from our economy, it's something like 50 barrels of oil equivalent per person, okay? Or fuel use, let's say, which ties to emissions. And then but if you were to like add our trade, you have to add like another 15 barrels because of all the stuff we're buying in, right. if you were to really include it, so really we're more like sixty-five barrel of oil equivalent in terms of energy. Yes, yeah. you know it's crazy. It's a huge percentage, in other words. It's interesting you bring up the sulfur and and the amount the amount of uh, fuel used. Well, new regulations are coming into effect now, where the sulfur has to be cleaned up, so the bunker fuel can't be as dirty, or the ships have to have scrubbers. And of course, anytime you're now. You're doing that. You're adding a cost to uh, a direct cost. Okay, of course it's 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 improving environmental and external costs, externalized costs. But it means that fuel is going to get more expensive. Ships are going to get more expensive. You're just to trying to undo all the good work we've done to cut costs, aren't you? Yeah, and this is sort of interesting. Is like actually taking care of the environment can cost industry, so they resist. Sh- it. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. Really? What? What? Yeah. Well, what, and so, and then you think about the depletion of fossil fuels long term, of course, which is something we've covered quite a bit in season one. That it looks to me like the future of global trade is one of contraction. There's going to be less ships moving, or there's going to be moving slower. They're going to have to slow down to use less fuel. They they can have much more fuel efficiency if they just travel like at half their speed they would prefer to. There's even technologies being developed to add sails, you know, advanced sail systems back to ships. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we can improve efficiency, but the long term is less trade, more expensive trade, less convenient, and so a decline overall in a global trade. I mean, if you think about it, we, we said 90% of everything, right? So if 90% of everything comes on a container of some kind, and that's global in scope, and there's going to be a higher cost to the fuel that's used for these things, whether it's because we get smart about climate, right. we get smart about some of the other particulate stuff, or because of just depletion of, of oil, the ability to do that is going to go down. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's going to that's going to create a lot of change if you think about it. We're really dependent on this globalized trading system. You know, even if it might have started as a luxury in the early days yeah. of right. human civilization, now yeah. we're in a situation where we're really like we're talking about with medicine for example, yeah. you know, very vulnerable to it. But even though that could be painful that that contraction of that globalized trade, I think that there are a lot of benefits if you, if you think about it i sure. mean the the idea of globalized trade presented to people in quote unquote advanced economies like our own is that our products will be cheaper because it'll be manufactured somewhere else or we can get more of and them. more variety right mm-hmm. and the the value statement to people in in the countries that have been opened up to to manufacture those things is you know economic opportunity or whatever jobs yeah you know but i think that the quality of life that we have, um, I'll talk about us here in these quote-unquote advanced economies. You know, how much is that really improving our life, our, our lives, the quality of, of our daily interactions? Well, our- 
I think there's a kind of a deadening of the soul almost if you if you play the role that they, the corporate entities or or the the masters of global trade want you to play. You're you're kind of like a peon, right? Like your job it's to consume. is to yeah, is to buy that plastic crap that's coming over and, 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 and play some really kind of mundane role as a cog in the machine. Right, right. right. Maybe you have a, a job as I don't know some 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 job that's somehow involved in that global trade. The PR manager for the maritime industry. Or maybe the lobbyist, <laughs> the lobbyist who keeps the uh, environmental uh, actions from costing them more. Right? Exactly, right. Right. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. there's some... Um, com- I don't know, yeah. just compare being that peon in the system to what you could be in a vibrant local economy. I mean, that's the where you're talking about benefits a share. Yeah, there's, um, there's an anthropologist uh, named David Graeber... He wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, right? right? right. <laughs> it's actually really fascinating. Yeah. And there's a long story behind uh, what inspired him to do that, which I think, go Google Google it, it's worth it. But, you know, what he documents is that so much of the economy in, like I said, in quote unquote advanced countries in particular, bullshit jobs, you know, like, you know, soul crushing, <laughs> pointless, meaningless jobs that don't add much value to society and don't improve quality of life very much. We're in this, talk about Rube Goldberg thing, we're in this sort of machine where we have to work these jobs that don't necessarily provide us a lot of quality of life in order to go buy shit that makes us happy for the the brief dopamine. The unwrapping. Yeah, you ever been at like a a holiday party or a birthday party or something? And you first thing you ask somebody is, oh, what what do you do for a living? And, And they just give you this horror story and you're like... Well, uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Exactly. But so, and I don't want to idealize what life can be like without that or what life used to be like. But, you know, the idea of doing honest work, labor that you're actually making things, you're making food, you're making... You're filleting fish that you're then selling. (laughs) Um, you're, You're directly connected to the food that you're eating, the products that you might buy. You have a relation. And if you're not the one that the craftsperson that's making that table, maybe you have a relationship with that person. Right. And those things mean more and they get they get repaired instead of thrown away. Totally. And that that connection with with place, with with the things that that we depend on, you know, in our lives, I think provides a lot more meaning than just buying something, you know, at Walmart that we drive up and they stick in the back of our car. And yeah, you, you said the R word, relationship, and I, I mean that's a big part of the fun, really, of a of a local economy is building these relationships here in. In Corvallis, in the in the Willamette Valley, often we talk about how lucky we are with with some of the ability to avoid the the, the crazy town food here. Uh, you really can work toward consuming locally. We have farmers market. We have uh, an outfit called the Local Six that kind of labels food that's from the the six counties around. Here, there's a lot of community-supported agriculture uh, opportunities to get your food from farmers that you know. Even um, it's not just raw produce either. Like there's a bakery, Wild Yeast, that ha- operates like a CSA. Um, we've got uh, Natural Foods Co-op you can go to instead of Safeway and Walmart. So, like uncovering that is actually, I don't know, it's sort of an adventure. Yeah, yeah, it's really. Interesting. We even have an energy co-op. My family participated in this. We we live in the trees. We can't actually put solar panels on our on our house. 
which uh, is strange for me having moved from California where I had them. Yeah. But there's an organization that actually allowed us to invest so that a local family that was living in the flats with more sun exposure who couldn't afford to put solar panels on their house, we basically effectively loaned them that mm-hmm. that money so they could do that. So there's there's this cooperative effort even to to address some of the, the electricity needs. Yeah, you know? we're doing it on the schools too, that co-op's putting on solar panels on the schools. Right. right. Well, a lot of times, too, you can find these networks that exist that can help you find the local economy or the players in the local economy. There's one called Common Future, which is in development. It came out of uh, what was formerly the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And Corvallis has some experience, too, with an independent business alliance. So you can look for these networks that then can help you find what are the the local craftspeople, who who are they, and, and where are the local businesses. There's a lot of examples of those around here, too. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, of course, Corvallis has a big alcohol trade. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Vivacity Spirits is a distillery, and they have this, uh, what they call native gin. And so the gin has all these ingredients that are that are gathered from, from nearby. You know, yeah. Like, now yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting what people are trying to do. You know, like there's a company that makes shoes in in the in Philomath, a, a, a town near Corvallis. It's really interesting. Soft Star Shoes, for example. Yeah, there's a guy. He's selling uh, bike helmets. That's ma- that, that he makes out of local wood and does all the the uh, design and manufacturing right here in town. Like so, you, you don't think about like, oh, I could get a durable good like a bike helmet that's locally made. But. So you know, we're talking about examples from our our local community. I bet for folks listening, there's lots of examples in in your own local community that that you can go discover and promote and support. As you mentioned, the farmers market is is kind of the easiest one, and and farmers markets around the country uh, have been growing significantly. The other thing I would say is. To just recognize the vulnerability of the system, it's it's not going to be able to continue on the tra- certainly on the trajectory it's been on of growth. Right. And I would probably argue that it's a safe bet to say it's going to contract. So, if we're really relying on things coming from far away, and we have no idea how to get those needs met, or if we even need those things in the first place, right. you know, ask it, that question. Ask that question, and then think about you know what are the things that I could get that might be built to last, you well, know, might be repairable. Yeah. Thinking about this stuff makes me pretty damn hungry. So I'm wondering if we can go get that Chinese Scottish fish now. Yeah, why don't we just start cooking it up and just just do it right now. Forget dinner. Let's let's go let's We're, go make it let's, for lunch. Let's cook it over a bunker fuel fire. All right. <laughs> can we do it far from the house? <laughs> Hey, I'm really excited about uh, the show today and the offers we have. If you go to postcarbon.org slash crazy town, we have some great things if you sign up for our newsletter, uh, including a gallon of high sulfur bunker fuel. This stuff is going to be rare in the future. We're going to try to clean that shit up, but but it can be yours if you go to Crazy Town uh, website. Speaking of shit, uh, we're also offering 28,000 samples of rubber dog poo that uh, got knocked off a cargo ship. Yeah, picked up on some island, I think, in the Pacific Ocean, you know, kind of scoured. It's the ocean cleanup program. Right. And um, I've got a bottle, a special bottle for the first person who signs up, and that's of orangutan tears. Oh, nice. Oh, they taste so good. All right. So that's postcarbon.org slash crazy town. 